Well again, welcome, and especially if you're here for Phoebe's baptism, it's wonderful to have you. Maybe you've travelled a long way to come to be with us. It's very good that you've come. Uh, And uh, you might like to turn up your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, to the second of the two readings that Ricky read for us earlier in the service. Page 1139 uh, is the page number. The Bible might start to sort of flop open to Romans 12. We've been looking at it for the last uh, few weeks, so uh, church Bibles might now just go there automatically. But if they don't, page 1139 is the page number uh, that you want. The American preacher and author A.W. Tozer, who many of you will know of, wrote these words. If you do not worship God seven days a week, you do not worship him one day a week. There is no such thing known in heaven as Sunday worship unless it is accompanied by Monday worship and Tuesday worship and so on. Now that's what we've been seeing in Romans chapter 12 over these last few weeks. Verse 1 has been our New Year's resolution as a church family. I've given it to us to collectively offer our bodies that we might be a living sacrifice. And as you look at the end of verse 1, we discover that is what worship is. For to worship is to live the, the whole of life for the living God. And it is to affect every aspect of life. And we do need to keep saying that because worship is so easily misunderstood. I received this recently in the post inviting me to what it calls a a worship extravaganza. And as I read through it, uh, I discover it turns out to be an evening of singing Christian songs led by Christian singers and worship leaders from all over the world. No expense has been spared, it seems. But look, worship is more than singing. Uh, Just as it is more than meeting together for an hour on a Sunday morning. You know, you can look as you drive uh, around Britain, you can see a number of uh, things on the side of churches that says, join us for worship on a Sunday. To worship, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, must be played out in the home, at the office, at the school gates, in our leisure time and in our work situation. That is what Phoebe has been baptised into today. I know Ian and Helen live that way and want her to grow up to know and to be wholeheartedly committed to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a servant, as we thought earlier. Every day, through every aspect of her life. That is how we are to be. That is worship. And not least of all in the way that we relate to one another. Um, how we relate to each other in the church. We saw that last week in verses 3 to 13. And this week, how we relate to uh, unbelievers, and particularly unbelievers who hate us, who persecute us. We'll see that in verses 14 to 21. Now look, the words here in verses 14 to 21 are very challenging. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my friends. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, you see, to live this way is worship. And for all of us to do that all the time in every aspect of life would be a worship extravaganza. And this is sacrifice because Paul assumes that many in the local community will be inhospitable towards Christians persecuting the church. 
Paul assumes that there are many in the world who are not just indifferent, although of course there are people like that, but there will be many who who will want to make um, life uncomfortable for Christians. And the reason Paul writes that is because this world is a world that has already rejected God and as a result, many who live in this world will live at enmity with God's people. All are at enmity with God. Some will be very particularly at enmity with God's people. Now that's what we learned when we looked at verse 2. You see, uh, just cast your eye back to verse 2. And you see, I'm convinced as I've been going through uh, this chapter of Romans that you actually need to understand Romans, verses one, Romans 12, verses 1, 2 and 3 in order to understand the rest of it. Increasingly we've been seeing that. Now in verse 2, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, there is a pattern to this world. Do you see it there? Do not conform to the pattern of this world. And the pattern of this world is deeply anti-God. And verse 2, the Christian is not to conform to the pattern of this world, but rather to be transformed, to rise above that. And look, until we grasp the pattern of this world, uh, we will not understand why Paul writes as he does, why he writes the things he does in verses 14 to 21. So you may have been here a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the pattern of this world, but some of you won't have been. And either way, I think it's crucial that we get the pattern of this world clear in our mind before we look at verses 14 to 21. So flip back with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. Uh, Keep um, uh, your service order or something in in Romans 12. We'll be coming back there in a moment. But flip back to Romans chapter 1, page 1,129 is the page number. And there we see the pattern of this world. We saw it a couple of weeks ago. Chapter 1, verse 23. The pattern of this world is first we exchange the glory of God for images. So we, we give up on God. We don't want to serve God anymore. We want images. And then, verse 23, we worship those images. Now, do you see what that says? Everybody is, is a worshipper. The question is who we're worshipping. We're either worshipping the true living God or we're worshipping something else. Everybody's doing that. We're all religious. Some people might say, I'm not religious. In one way, we're all religious. I know what people mean when they say that, but we're all religious. We're all worshipping something. And if we're not living the tr- serving and living for the true God, which none of us do, this is the pattern for all of us, not just people out there. This is the natural pattern. We reject God, we worship something else, and then... Verse 24, God gives us over to ungodly living. Now you see, God's restraining hand on, a, on the world and on society is a wonderful thing. And if we can continue to reject God, he eventually takes his restraining hand off the world and so we start to live lives that are very ungodly. Now it's a pattern because you see it happening again and again in Romans 1. As we live ungodly lives, the pattern begins again. Verse 25, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Although God's there, we don't want to live for him. Verse 25, we worship created things. Something else becomes the thing that we live for. And verse 26, God gives us over to live ungodly lives. And it goes on. Verse 28, we don't think it worth retaining the knowledge of God, so we worship other things. And verse 28, God gives us over to a depraved mind and then... Verse 29 and following, we live ungodly lives. Do you see the pattern? That is the pattern of this world. It is a world which is at odds with everything I believe as a Christian because the pattern of this world begins by rejecting the living God. Again, as we think of dear Phoebe this morning on her baptism, she will have to stand against that pattern 
if she is going to live out her baptismal promises. That is what we will have to stand against. Now look, so you don't think that Romans 1 is just um, you know, an extreme example of how bad the world can get. Let's look more closely at it and we'll see that actually this is the pattern of the world playing itself out in every area of life. If we look at verses 29 to 31, you see, as you read your Sunday newspaper, you will find verses 29 to 31 all over its pages. At verse 29, do you see the words there? Evil, greed and depravity. They're all over the, all over the Sunday newspapers, aren't they? Depravity in the shape of the drink culture and the sexual promiscuity and the base innuendo that is paraded and even celebrated in our society. Now you see, I'm not naive, I know that all those things were going on 50 years ago, but we have got worse in that it now not only goes on, but we're proud of it. We joke, it's a laugh, isn't it, all that's going on. So all those things are happening and then do you see the word there in verse 29, greed. People wanting to get rich quick. It's always a shock, isn't it, when um, someone you know turns up on the national news. Happened to me this week. On Monday evening, the six o'clock news reported the conviction of a woman for huge benefit fraud. I know her. I was looking at the film and I said, I know that woman. And I know she didn't need the sort of money she embezzled. Huge amounts. Why did she do it? Greed. Just greedy for more. She hadn't been greedy for more. She might have got away with it. But greed is not just in the exceptional newsworthy story. It's everywhere. It's in the desire to win thousands or millions of pounds when we have so much already. Why are we obsessed with winning more money when most of us have plenty enough already, don't we? We don't need more stuff, do we? Desperate to win more. To fund a a lifestyle of acquiring stuff. It's why so many people work such, such crippling hours. Why do they work so long? You want to get more stuff? You've got enough stuff. Now, you see, this is the fabric of our societies. This, you see, verse, verses 29 to 31 is actually what's going on, is, is what makes our society run at the moment. And look, verse 29, you'll see these words, envy, strife, deceit. Those will be the motives behind a huge number of crimes reported in the news. But never mind the news, they'll be in the workplace on Monday morning. They they certainly were when I was working in the newspaper industry. People striving for promotion. Nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but when you start to envy others, and when you are deceitful in order to climb the company ladder, this is our world, isn't it? Describe our world. See, when it's a long list, you think, it's a really bad place. Where, Where is this describing? You start picking it apart and you think, oh yeah, this is our world. And end of verse 29 and verse 30, do you see what it describes there? Gossip, slanderers, God-haters, people who are insolent, arrogant and boastful. Now again, put together like that, it sounds like a terrible place, but that is just a very clear description of a place we send the most vulnerable members of our society to every day, our children. If you come with me to the playground, it's just like this. Playground can be such a cruel and vindictive place, can't it? They don't have explosives in the playground, but but they don't need them to inflict damage on little lives by other little lives. They don't need bombs because they have words. Remember the old saying, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's not true, is it? Words do hurt. 
And children can be so nasty and spiteful. Playgrounds are war zones. I'm convinced that's why uh, all playground monitors are large ladies. At least they were when I was a boy, anyway. They were massive and they needed to be because you've got to have tanks in a war zone, haven't you? Keep the peace. Well, I'm probably a bit extreme. Any, any, any playground monitors with a sign? Well, there we are. Lorna, you're not a, a built like a tank, so there we are. Just goes to show you I'm overplaying the point. But the, the point is the school, ground, school playground is a violent place. My girls tell me what's going on in the playground. It's staggering. There's the gossip, you see, of verse 29. When I collect the girls from school, I hear, Daddy, Emily told me that Phoebe... And slander. Tom called Katie a witch. Arrogance and boasting. I am so much better than... It's all going on in the playground. And inside the classroom, you'll find verse 30, uh, God-haters. So one of ours came home uh, last year and said, Mrs... And I won't use the teacher's name... Mrs. whatever her name was, told us today that the world just happened out of nothing. I told her that God made the world and she said that wasn't true. Is it true, Daddy? Now look, please don't misunderstand me. The school our children go to are doing a fantastic job. We're not upset by them at all. We're not going to move them, the children. The teachers are dedicated and hard-working. They're doing great work with our children. The truth is that all schools are like this. They all will perpetuate the lie that God doesn't exist because, um, because that's the pattern of this world. Because people at school and the school curriculum is driven by the pattern of this world. I mean, everything they're doing is wrong. Just saying these things will be happening. And it begins, the pattern of this world begins with people exchanging the truth of God for a lie, do you see? So the lie that the one true God doesn't exist is at the heart of everything and everyone who doesn't follow the Lord. Now do you see, the point of doing all this is to say this is the real world we're living in. Romans chapter 1 is not an extreme description of the really terrible parts of the planet, the deprived areas of our cities and the war zones in our world. No, this describes what is happening everywhere, all around us. And even in our homes, so end of verse 30, 30 and 31, are people disobeying parents and people being faithless, heartless and ruthless. And we know it's true. When the front door is closed and no one else can see, this stuff is not uncommon in families in even respectable forward. Parents are ignored. Spouses are unfaithful. And some of the heartless things that people say to members of the family. Why is it that we hurt the people we love the most? Because of the pattern of this world, isn't it? Because if we reject the living God, we can live how we like. Of this world, and it hurts all the more when it's at home, doesn't it? Because the home is meant to be a place of security and acceptance and unconditional love. Now, look, with the pattern of this world in mind, as we turn back to Romans chapter 12, we will see why Paul writes as he does. Come back with me to chapter 12, page 1139. And we'll see not only why he writes as he does, but how we should be different from the pattern of this world, how we should be transformed by the renewing of our mind, as it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. So question, what will a transformed life look like when I'm living in an evil world which is 
constantly attacking me and is at odds with everything I believe. Now again, let me say I realise that many people uh, are are nice people, uh, that many of them uh, will not be attacking me, but there will be some who do just because I'm a believer. How am I to relate to those people? And once I've got how I'm to relate to those people, then it's how I'm to relate to everyone because they're going to be the people we're most unlikely to relate to properly. How am I to relate to them? Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now again, before we look at the detail and see how this has got to be lived out, I would guess a number of us here will be thinking, well, this really isn't relevant to me. I don't have enemies. No one's persecuting me. Yes, in first century Rome, the Christians had enemies. And of course, Christians living in Kenya and in Zimbabwe have enemies and Christians in Islamic states, in Pakistan, in Iraq, in northern Nigeria, in Sudan, they know all about being persecuted. But in Britain? Well, before we write this verse off as being irrelevant, be sure there are Christians in Britain and groups of people in this congregation who know all about persecution just because they're Christian. Think again of our children. We've already considered what a cruel place the playground can be. Well, look, and this is going to be true for Phoebe if she stands up and takes the, the truth of the gospel for herself. If our children stand up at school and say they're Christian, you and I know they will get a hard time for it. Their little friends, and when they're at secondary school, their big friends will give them a hard time. And it really hurts them, doesn't it? Peer pressure is huge. We all, we all care about what other people think of us. But when you're a little one, and particularly when you're a teenager, it's very important to kids. Well, and as we thought, not just peer pressure, when last year one of mine came home and told me that her teacher had said that God didn't make the world, she was only six. And it is hard for a six-year-old little girl to be told in front of her whole class by the teacher that what she believes is wrong, isn't it? Well, good for her for standing up for the truth, but you know and I know that if she continues to do that, she will be persecuted at one level. So I don't know whether you do this. I often find myself, as they go off to school, I've been on the school run this last couple of weeks, I've dropped them off, and I've been walking back, I've been praying that my, for my children that, that, they won't, that they'll be protected from the lies that they'll be taught at school. Don't mishear me, they're... The school's doing a fantastic job, loads of good things, but they will be taught some things that are at odds with Christian truth. And if they go on to university, it will continue there. Ask Dave about the battles that students have. The recent battles that Christian unions have had up and down this country have been well documented. I think of Exeter Christian Union, not allowed to meet in rooms in the university because of their Christian views. They are being persecuted as are some adults in this congregation, in their work situation, because they've stood up for Christ and his values, and it is costing them. And then there are those who are being persecuted at home, which is so very hard to stand up for Christ and to live for him at home, when others at home are against Christ, is is hard, and it's very courageous. Now, don't be fooled. Verse 14 is remarkably relevant to us here, isn't it? And because there are people who are being persecuted. Well, how should you live when people are persecuting you? Well, we could be tempted to put up the shutters, to retreat from the world, to live only with Christian brothers and sisters, but of course that won't do. Being a living sacrifice means living in the world. 
And not least of all, because we're meant to help other, other people become Christians. You only do that if we're rubbing shoulders with them every day. So I must live in the world, and when I'm persecuted by the world, verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Now you see, that is a very striking verse, because if we conform to the pattern of this world, we would react quite differently to our enemies, wouldn't we? How does this world tell me to react to my, to my enemy? Well, I want them to get their comeuppance when they persecute me. I'll demand justice. I'll be outraged that people can treat me badly. Me! Because I'm so important that you should treat me like that. Well, I'll be tempted to curse you. I might not do it, but I'll be tempted to curse you. I certainly want bad things to happen to you. But not only should I not curse, but verse 14 more positively, I should bless. That is, I should want people to become Christian. That is the blessing, isn't it? The ultimate blessing anybody can have is to know the living God. So what will it mean to bless those who persecute me? Well, two things, one in verse 15 and one in verse 16. This is what it will look like. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. It's a, it's a lovely verse that you could, uh, you could easily sort of um, uh, quake out of context, put it on your fridge door and say, yes, I'll rejoice with those who rejoice and I'll mourn with those who mourn. That's a great thing to do. But in the context, it is remarkably tough to live this. This is how I'm to bless people who persecute me. So when things go well for people who persecuted me, I am to be pleased for them. I am to rejoice with them. And when things go badly for them, I'm to sympathise with them and mourn with them. That really is hard to live, isn't it? And again, so different from the pattern of this world where the watchwords are envy, malice. In London, we, we lived in a flat and above us we had a very noisy neighbour. I mean, really noisy. He would arrive in late every night. He would turn up drunk. And as he came in drunk, he would turn up his music so that we could hear the thudding of the bass. And I don't exaggerate, all the words of the songs right through our little flat. Every word we could hear. Didn't even like the song. He played crooner stuff. It wouldn't have been bad if I liked it, but it was terrible. Made our life a misery. We'd uh, just had newborn twins. Um, they were four months old when all this started. We were already fairly well sleep deprived. This went on and on. It was miserable. He made our life a misery. I've got to say, it was very hard to think good thoughts towards that man. It was very easy to wish bad things to happen to him. But to do that, you see, is to follow the pattern of this world, isn't it? If I'm to bless my enemies, if I want them to become Christians, then I live, verse 15, I rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. What does that look like? Well, we're going to have to work it out. But I guess you rejoice with people who persecuted you by sending them a card to say how pleased you were to hear of the birth and the safe arrival of their baby. You rejoice with them. That's, I'm really pleased that that's gone well and that you're having a good time. Uh, when we were in London, I was given some tickets to the theatre. I'd heard uh, that it was our noisy neighbour's birthday. I'd heard a lot of things from our noisy neighbour, but I heard that as well. So I took them to him. I still remember ringing the doorbell and feeling terrified. Uh, he invited me up into his flat, I went up the stairs and, um, and, and, and I, I gave him these, these tickets. And after all the trouble he caused us, to say he was surprised by my offer would be an understatement. He simply didn't know what to say. He couldn't believe it. Why are you giving me these? 
But you see, I'm to rejoice with those who rejoice and and mourn with those who mourn. So when things go badly for my enemy, I'll be tempted to be pleased. But Paul says, no, I'm to show them that I'm devastated for them. Verse 15, what a wonderful way to commend my Lord and Saviour to others. And you see, that's worship. That that is a sacrifice, as it says in verse 1, because it costs me to live that way. Well, if that's the first thing I'm to do in order to bless others, verse 15, then the second thing is verse 16. Do you see it there? Live in harmony with one another. Now, uh, please note that the one another in this verse, uh, one another's in the Bible always refer to other Christians. So when I first read this verse, I wondered why it was here. I was tempted to think that it had slipped down three verses that it actually belongs to verses 9 to 13, where last week we were thinking Paul tells us how we should relate to one another as Christians. Uh, But of course it hasn't slipped, it's here quite deliberately. The point is we bless others, others who've persecuted us, by showing them the way we live among ourselves. The Christian community living together in harmony will have a huge impact on any who are our enemies. Won't it? So, at the school gate uh, this week, having done the, the school run with Caroline away, one of the other mums who I've met before, and uh, not having seen Caroline around for a couple of weeks, she said to me, how's your wife? I explained that she was away in New Zealand following the sudden death of her dad, and she said how sorry she was for Caroline, and, and, and she said, well, it must be hard for you looking after the children and, and doing your job. And I said, well, yes it is, but you know, the church family have been rallying around, they've been amazing. People have been cooking for us, bringing meals round. People have been helping out with the children, looking after them when I can't do that. Um, uh, people at work have been taking work off me so that I can have time at home. She was amazed. But you see, that's the point. The way we live together has an impact on unbelievers and on people who persecute us. They may be persecuting us and giving us a hard time that we're Christians, but if we live at harmony with one another, they'll have to, they'll have to admit there's something in it. I wonder if you've heard when people have stood up at the front of church and talked about how they became a Christian. And when they've talked about that, yes, it might be the truth of the gospel that's made them finally become a Christian, but time and again you'll hear them say, the thing that really hit me was coming among Christians and seeing the way they loved each other. Isn't that right? It will have an impact on this world And not least of all, because harmony is in such short supply in our world. The world longs for it. The world doesn't do much to get it, but the world longs for harmony. We want a peaceful, easy feeling, as the Eagles wrote. Many people don't even experience it in their family life. And the pattern of this world will never foster harmony, not with envy and strife and deceit flying around all over the place. So do you see, to live, verse 16, in harmony with one another will attract our enemies in Christ... And of course harmony comes when, verse 16, we're not proud, when we treat people well, when we're not conceited, when as we saw last week, verse 3, we have a sober view of ourselves. If I view myself properly, not as a great person, but just as a a forgiven sinner, I'll treat others properly. And then, verse 16, we'll associate with people of low position because we won't think we're any big cheese either. We won't even see people as low position. We'll just see them as people, won't we? I see, the point is this, if we live like this, our enemies will want in, won't they? Because a place of caring relationships 
living in peace and harmony is such an attractive place. Well, if the first point is bless those who persecute you, the the, the second is let God be God. Verses 17 to 21. Look at verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. See, again, that's the pattern of this world, repaying people, giving them what they deserve. Our world has gone litigation mad, hasn't it? We want to blame people for everything. We always want to get even. That's no way for the Christian to live. We have been forgiven so much by the living God. If it's, if it's getting even we want, we're really in trouble because we've rejected him all our lives, but he has shown this huge mercy, verse 1. We can't be into getting even. We shouldn't want to bring evil upon our others. No, verse 17, halfway through, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I love the realism of those words. If it's possible, it isn't always possible. The Bible recognises that, but do what you can. Make the attempt. Make the attempt to, to, to get it right between others and never take revenge. And here's the big thrust of this point. For end of verse 19, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, with that phrase, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord, with that phrase in mind, you see how arrogant vengeance is. Vengeance is God's role, his prerogative. And so if I take revenge, I am taking the place of God. Which, of course, is why it happens so much in our world, because the pattern of this world is to have rejected God, and once God's out, out of the picture, I'm number one. So I'm allowed to do whatever I like. If I want to take vengeance on you, I will. But we can't assume the place of God, because we know he exists, if we're Christian. So, verse 3, don't think of yourselves too highly. Think of yourself with sober judgment. Never put yourself in the place of God. So you won't take revenge because to take revenge is to play God. That's his job. So verses 19 and 20, don't take revenge but help your enemy. Meet his needs, verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. That's a strange phrase, isn't it? It suddenly seems that after all this speech of um, uh, you know, help people and look after them, then actually the only reason you're doing it is so they get a hard time. Heap burning coals on their head. That can't be it. Paul can't be encouraging us to do short-term good with the malicious aim of long-term harm. You know, do good things so that when they really are judged by God, they'll really get it. That, that's not it. Hoping our kindness will give even greater punishment at God's judgment. No, the point is the same as the rest of the passage. We do good towards those who persecuted us in the hope that they will realise how evil they've been in giving us a hard time for no reason. Not difficult to imagine, is it, how this could work itself out. If someone has been persecuting you just because you're a Christian and all they get back from you is kindness and sympathy it is quite possible that when they lay their head down on their pillow at night that they will feel guilty for the way they treated you. Isn't that possible? Your actions will make them feel the heat of their unkindness towards you, burning coals on their heads, you see. And that might just lead them to repentance. You live a good life among them and they might realise they shouldn't have persecuted you at all. But that will never happen if we repay evil for evil. 
And then we'll just be reacting as the world acts. So, verse 29, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's very important when you look at that verse to realise there's nothing neutral about every situation you find yourself in. The way we respond in every situation, we will either be overcome with evil, so evil comes upon us and we react with evil, in which case evil has overcome us, or we will overcome evil with good. We'll, We'll react in a godly way. But there's never a neutral position. Well, as I close, let me uh, quote Alfred Plummer, the 19th century biblical scholar. He coined this helpful little epigram. It goes like this. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. Let me explain it. To return evil for good is devilish. If someone does something good to you and all you do back to them is evil, well, that comes from the devil, doesn't it? To return good for good is human. If someone does something good to you and you do good return, well, there's nothing spectacular about that. That's what we do. Everybody doesn't have to be a Christian to do that. But to return good for evil, that's divine. That's come from him, hasn't it? And that is how the Christian man and woman should live. That, says Paul, is the mark of a transformed life. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice because that is costly. And that is true worship. And if it's done all the time by all of us everywhere we are, that'll be a worship extravaganza in forward, won't it? And that will be quite out of this world. Let's pray together.